From the Hunter Catechism, we read together Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. And second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism was first published in 1563. It's more than 450 years old, and yet we use it on a weekly basis. Our young people and new Christians are taught the Catechism to become familiar with the basic teachings of the Bible. Our ministers use the Catechism in their preaching Sunday afternoons to ensure that the whole counsel of God gets taught from year to year. But how much sense does it make to use this old document? Is this just a custom or a tradition in our churches? How relevant is such a dated document to our lives? To answer that question, we need to understand something about the time and circumstances in which the Heidelberg Catechism was written. It was a time of religious conflict between Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anabaptists. The Roman Catholic rulers of France and Spain oppressed and persecuted all those who did not subscribe to the teachings of the Roman Church. Protestant believers were considered heretics. They were imprisoned. They had their property confiscated. They were tortured. They were even hung or burned at the stake. In Europe, the 16th and 17th centuries were marked by war. The Thirty Years' War was a series of wars fought in Central Europe from 1618 to 1648. It was fought largely as a religious war between Catholics and Protestants, although disputes about the balance of power in the empire played a significant role. War meant that husbands and sons were killed. It meant that invading forces trampled crops, destroyed communities, and raped the women. This time was also marked by famine and plague. The teachings of the Roman Catholic Church were still dominant. Most people believed that you had to do good works in order to be saved. 
When you sinned, you needed to confess your sins to the priest. You needed to do works of penance to pay for them. The pious believer living in those days was told to do his best and hope for the best. But you could never have any assurance of your salvation. For your sins might outnumber your good deeds. And then you would not make it to heaven. It's in this context of hardship and persecution and a works-based theology that the Catechism was written. It begins by asking, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This first question and answer of the Catechism summarizes its teaching. It's a superbly relevant question and answer, living for us today in the 21st century. The world today has not changed all that much from 450 years ago. Sure, there's been astounding developments in medicine and technology. People may live more comfortably than they did in centuries past. But at root, people are still the same. We are sinful people. And the results of sin are all around us. Also today, people face great struggles in life. Financial stress, dysfunctional relationships, loneliness, anxiety, depression, and other mental health difficulties. We're still confronted with conflicts and war, with illness and death. Our catechism gives us a perspective on life. It helps us understand why we face misery in our lives. It comforts us with the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It teaches us how to live renewed lives as God's children, out of thankfulness for the redemption Christ has earned for us. Above all, the Catechism gives us comfort, the comfort we need in this sinful and broken world. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God gives us the comfort we need to live and die in the joy of our faith. Our comfort comes from knowing to whom we belong, what he has done for us, and how we may live and die in him. The Catechism begins with the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The question is about comfort, not about what makes us comfortable. The focus here is not on a reclining lazy board chair or a warm fire to sit in front of. It's not on a big bank account or a home filled with luxuries or going on a cruise. It's not on an evening of fun and fellowship with close friends. In mind are none of those things that the world normally associates with comfort. The word comfort derives from a Latin word meaning to strengthen. You can see this in the second syllable of this word. To get a better sense of the question the catechism is asking, we could phrase the question in this way. 
What is your only fort in life and death? In other words, what is your fortress? What is your strength? What gives you power to keep going when life gets tough? On what or on who do you rely? What's your only comfort in life and death? Our catechism answers this central question we face in life most beautifully. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's two parts to this answer. That I'm not my own, and that I belong to Jesus Christ. We'll deal with each in turn. What does it mean when we confess that I am not my own? We know that this statement is scriptural. It comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. There Paul tells the Corinthian believers, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. It's not always something we're ready to admit. It's something that our sinful nature struggles against. By nature, we like to think we're in charge of our own lives, that we can make our own decisions in life, that no one else can tell us what to do. By nature, our hearts are proud. We consider ourselves to be self-reliant and self-sufficient, that every individual is independent, that we have the right and the power to chart our own course in life. Yet this idea that I can be my own man or my own woman in life faces difficulties. The problem is, is that we are human beings. We are made from the dust of the earth. And because of sin, we will die and return to dust again. In Isaiah 40, we're told, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Here today and gone tomorrow, our life is transitory. It will soon end. There's a further problem to being on our own, belonging to no one. If that were the case, then one day we'd have to appear before the throne of God, all on our own. What could you say to defend yourself when all your sins were laid bare? We'd have to admit, I have not kept your law, O God. I have not loved you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I have not loved my neighbor as myself. There's times when I had good intentions, but I could never fulfill what you required of me. My sins and my misery are great. On that day, we will see clearly how much we deserve to die. Most often, we do not need to wait for the final day of judgment to realize we cannot make it on our own through life. That we can't hack life by ourselves. That we need someone or something to deliver us from our sins and misery. We not only learn this from God's word. The experience of life also teaches us this. 
For, beloved, we live in a sinful and in a broken world. Our lives often involve much suffering and hardship. One reason why God allows people to undergo trials and sorrows is to call them to put their faith and trust in Him. Another is to prove that our faith is genuine. We see this in the life of God's servant Job. His story is familiar to most of us. He was the richest man in the East, blessed with material prosperity, ten children, many friends and associates. Yet God gave him over to the hand of Satan. Satan took away all that Job had. His children died, his goods were taken or destroyed. His friends and associates left him, except for a few who proved to be poor comforters. Job was afflicted with a horrible illness. Terrible sores covered him from head to toe. He felt like his life was near the end. In chapter 19, Job cries out because of the hardships he endured. He first responds to the cruelty of his friends. He says, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Job's friends were convinced that his suffering was due to specific, unconfessed sin in his life. Again and again they charged him with wrongdoing, because they believed that for him to suffer so much, he must have offended God greatly. It adds to Job's suffering. He's been estranged from all his brothers, relatives, and close friends. He felt isolated, all alone. Yet it's not the loss of children and goods or the alienation from family and friends that caused Job his deepest struggles. Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Formerly, he had enjoyed close communion with the Lord. But now it seemed to him like the Lord had left him. In Job 19.6, he says, Know that God has wronged me. And in the verses that follow, Job explains how God has broken him down on every side, how God counts him as an adversary. What really gets to Job is that he cannot experience God's fatherly love anymore. And so Job cries out in his great despair. Not many people will suffer as much as Job did in his life, but will all be confronted with the reality of being sinful people and living in a sinful, broken world. At some point, each one of us will face adversity, hardships, struggles, and sorrow in this life because of illness, anxiety, or depression, because of struggles in our marriage or brokenness in family life, because of addictions or struggles in mental health, because we long for a marriage partner or child or close friend, but God has not granted the desires of our heart. Ultimately, we'll all be confronted with death, the death of loved ones, and in the end, our own. Such experiences teach us about the need for comfort. 
And our catechism, echoing God's word, teaches that my comfort, my strength, my security does not lie in myself. It never lies in my abilities, my intellect, or my hard work. It never lies in me, a weak and sinful person. We have fallen from the glory of God. We have brought upon ourselves blindness, futility, perversity, hardness of heart, impurity in all our desires. Fallen people cannot find comfort in themselves or in anyone else. We have no real comfort to give. The Catechism directs us away from ourselves. It's never about me. If I'm not my own, whose am I? Our Catechism gives a clear answer. I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to Christ. I was made through him. I was redeemed by him. Christ is sovereign king, seated on the throne at the right hand of God. He's in control of my life. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He rules and governs everything that happens in this world. He also looks after me. How completely am I as a believer in Christ's hands? Totally and absolutely. Know what our catechism says. It says that I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. All of me, body and soul, belongs to Christ. Christ cares about both my material and my spiritual needs. And please note the time frame. In life and in death, there never is or will be a time when we do not belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, the Catechism is not making this up. It's drawing from what the Bible teaches. In Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Believers belong to the Lord. Totally and completely, all the time, nobody and nothing can ever tear us away from the Lord. Beloved, please consider the life of Job. Satan was convinced that if God allowed him to take away Job's blessings, he would curse God to his face. But Job didn't do that. When he lost his children and goods, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
When Job was afflicted with painful sores, so he sat scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery as he sat on the ash heap. Job's wife came and told him to curse God and die. Yet his response was, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? How is it possible for Job to persevere through the midst of such great adversity? Where did he find strength to go on during such great loss and sorrow? Job 19 makes clear the answer. Job cried out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. When Job speaks about his Redeemer, he uses the Hebrew word goel. The goel was someone who defended or avenged the rights of another person. In Israel, the goel was the nearest relative who had certain obligations to his kinsmen. They included redeeming a relative from slavery, buying back the property of a relative forced to sell, even avenging the blood of a relative who was murdered. And so we see that Job expresses his confidence that a Redeemer would arise to defend him. Job thought he was dying, but he nevertheless had a living hope that this Redeemer would stand upon the earth. Literally, the Hebrew reads, over the dust. Even though Job will die and be reduced to a handful of dust, His confidence is in the coming Redeemer, in the one who would plead his cause, who would defend his honor, who would vindicate him. Thus, in life and in death, Job knew he belonged to the Lord. So it comforted and strengthened him in all the struggles he faced in his life. Brings us to our second point, and it will see that our comfort comes not only from knowing to whom we belong, but also what he has done for us. We know that the Redeemer that Job is crying out for is our Lord Jesus Christ. Though Job spoke of him prophetically, he only saw his Redeemer in shadowy form. The fullness of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us was not yet made known in Job's day. Yet the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. The Catechism summarizes his redemptive work in the next lines of our Lord's Day. It says that Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Christ came to save us from our sins from the punishment we deserve, the everlasting punishment of body and soul. How is it that Christ has redeemed us? How has he set us free from sin and death? The answer lies in the cross. Jesus came into this world with a very specific purpose. It was to offer up his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did that willingly. 
He is the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. He willingly laid down his life for our sake. It's in Christ's sacrificial death that we find our comfort. For he paid the price to redeem us from our sins. What does it mean to redeem or ransom someone? People living in New Testament times understood this far better than we do today. They lived in a world where slavery was a part of everyday life. In the first century, about a third of the population was made up of slaves. The interesting thing about Roman slavery is how many individuals became slaves. Some were made slaves when Roman armies conquered their land. But many slaves were former Roman citizens. Imagine being a freeman in first century Rome. Now suppose you wanted to begin a business but didn't have enough money to get started. You could borrow money from the money lenders. But now consider what would happen if your business did not work out, if you lost everything. There were no laws to protect you from bankruptcy. The only option you would have is to sell yourself and your family into slavery. Most likely the moneylender would not need any more slaves. So he would sell you and your loved ones to any master willing to buy you. Selling yourself into slavery did not mean that you would have to work as a slave for a certain period of time until your debt was paid. You were the payment for your debt. The result is that you would have to spend the rest of your life as a slave. As a result, you lost all your privileges as a Roman citizen. In the eyes of the government, you were not a person anymore. You were a piece of property. For many people, slavery was a death sentence. And so it was with us, beloved. With a fall into sin, we lost our privileged position of belonging to God and living in communion with Him. We lost our status as free men. Instead, we became slaves of sin. Our hearts became corrupt so that our inclination was to do evil all the time. We came under the mastery of Satan. Instead of being God's representatives ruling over creation on his behalf, we were enslaved by the power of the devil. Satan is a cruel taskmaster. He will not voluntarily release us. If we remained in this state, we would be eternally lost. Was there any way out for someone who became a slave in Roman society? Yes. If someone would redeem or ransom you. Roman law made provision for this. If you had a rich relative who heard of your dire circumstances and wanted to help, he could buy you back from your master. And your master would be willing to do this, for he could make a profit from you. Thus, by paying an agreed-upon sum of money, you could be set free from your slavery. The Bible makes it clear that Christ has ransomed us from the debt incurred by our sins, 
that he has freed us from the mastery of Satan. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 makes it clear that by his death, Christ destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not slaves of sin or Satan anymore. We are children of God. Through his wondrous work of redemption, Christ has restored us to being sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And since Christ paid a great price to secure our redemption, we have become very dear to him. We're precious in his sight. Christ's own treasured possession. We all know what we do with something that's precious to us. We protect it. We make sure it can't be stolen from us. We take good care of it. Well, in the same way, Christ takes care of us. Our catechism teaches us that he will preserve us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head without our Father's will. That, beloved, is an astounding thought. The average person has about 100,000 hairs on his head and loses 50 to 100 of them each day. That God's care over us is so complete, even this tiny detail of our lives is under his sovereign care. But how about when bad things happen to us? What about when we get sick or are diagnosed with a serious illness or face a devastating loss? Is God watching and caring for us when others take advantage of us or abuse us? There's times when we face great struggles in life and it seems like God has abandoned us. Just think of the life of Job. How do we explain that? How do we cope with that kind of life? By continuing to live in the joy of our faith. Holding fast the wonderful comfort we have in a living Redeemer. We do not always understand how or why God is at work in our lives. But we have his promise. He will give us the strength we need to persevere through hardships. God teaches us that his grace is sufficient for us. He will not give us more than we can bear. And he will use the hardships and sorrows of this life for our benefit, to draw us ever closer to him. Brings us to our final point, and it will see how our comfort comes from knowing how we can live and die in Christ. It's especially when we're faced with adversity and sorrow 
that we need to live from out of the joy of our faith. That joy comes from knowing our Redeemer. Consider the beautiful confession Job made when he felt he was close to death. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my own eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job had a living hope in his Redeemer that in the end he would stand upon the earth, that he would be triumphant over death, being raised to life again, that he would be triumphant over the grave, leaving it behind, that Christ would be triumphant over our graves and over the graves of all our loved ones, raising us, our parents, our spouses, our children, all our loved ones, to life again. Job confesses this. He speaks about how in his flesh he will see God. He talks about meeting him face to face, about seeing God with his own eyes. That was Job's hope. That was his confidence. He was dying, but he knew there was a future for him. A future in which all pain and sorrow and brokenness would be no more. A future in which he would meet with God, be reconciled to him, and live with him in glory. We too, beloved, may share this comfort, this hope, It is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just as Christ walked the pathway from suffering to glory, so we may be assured that after the sorrows of this life, we too will be raised up to live with God on new heavens and a new earth, to live with Him in joy and glory forevermore. It's that perspective that gets us through the darkest days we face on earth. The comfort of knowing we belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's what gives us strength and courage to face life's harshest trials so that we may continue to love God with all our heart and soul and strength that we may live for him even when we don't understand his ways with us. Beloved, can you see that our catechism is still relevant even though it's more than 450 years old? Lord's Day 1 summarizes the message of this beautiful confession. It teaches us to live in the joy of our faith by finding comfort in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our strength and our security lie in Christ. He's the one who gives us the fortitude to keep on going, to endure, to persevere to the end, to live joyous lives in His service, 
despite the trials and sorrows that come upon us in this often broken life. Find your comfort in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in Him alone. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by singing about our only comfort in life and death. Hymn 64. We'll do so standing. <laughs> 